And a warm welcome to our time together as we come to worship our Lord. Uh, We're going to begin uh, by singing and praising him. Uh, First of all, with worthy, O worthy are you, Lord. And then Jesus is the name we honor. So let's stand together as we sing his praise. Give me that. 
Well, the Bible uh, teaches us that Jesus is honored uh, and glorified through his church. Uh, the Bible teaches us that God's wisdom is displayed and made known through his people, uh, which is quite an amazing uh, thing to consider, isn't it? That through the people of God, uh, he chooses to display his glory. Uh, and I don't, I'm sure uh, most of us don't feel uh, that we are the display of God's glory, uh, but actually the Bible tells us very clearly uh, that that is true. Uh, and Ephesians chapter 2 and 3 are places uh, where Paul writes about this wonderful truth. And we're going to have our reading from there. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 19 to chapter 3 and verse 13. Uh, if you have one of the church Bibles, uh, that is page 1174. And Christine is going to come uh, and read that for us. Ephesians 2 from verse 19. You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the, God, the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. So Paul tells us right there that God's intent is that his manifold wisdom is shown through his church. Uh, and the church uh, in many places in the world is uh, suffering greatly. It doesn't look like, does it, that it is the display of the glory of God. Uh, but one day every eye will see uh, the wisdom of God as we as his people gather around his throne uh, and worship him uh, forever.
Our next song speaks of the, the foundation of that church being the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stand together and sing the church's one foundation. Please be seated, and let's bow our heads now and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who has a plan 
to build your church. And we thank you that nothing is going to stop that plan. We thank you that through the church, your manifold uh, wisdom is on display to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And we thank you that through your people, you display your wonderful glory. But we are sorry for the times when we have failed to reflect your purposes for the church. We're sorry for the times when we've spoken badly about brothers and sisters in Christ. We're sorry for the times when we've kept your people at arm's length and have not been involved in the life of the church. We're sorry when we have not loved one another as you have loved us, which you say is how people know that we are your disciples. We confess our sin in all of these areas and more, and we repent of our sin. We're amazed that we are called children of God, that we are part of the family of faith. We thank you for our church family here in Pelsall. We continue to pray that through the work here, many more would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we would be growing together to reflect your manifold wisdom. We pray also for other churches. We think uh, particularly tonight of the work in West Smethwick that we've uh, prayed for in the past where uh, Tom Martin is working. And we pray that you would save people in that area through the ministry of your people in West Smethwick. Please, Lord, would you send them uh, the help that they need. We pray that you would build up the church in that place. But even further afield, we want to take time this evening to pray uh, for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Uh, we know that some have escaped, and we pray that they would find churches in the new places where they are that could love and care for them and help them to grow after so much uh, turmoil. We thank you also for those believers who are in Afghanistan by choice because they want to stay and try to be a witness there. We pray for their protection. We pray you would give them wisdom in how to worship you in their current circumstances and how they can be a witness in that place. There are other believers who long to have escaped and are now trapped. Would you please protect them and comfort them and help them to trust in you through these difficult days? We do ask for the authorities there to change. We pray that your people would be free to worship you. But may all of them know in their hearts the truth that we've just been singing, that one day the church victorious will be the church at rest. And so we pray that in that nation and in many others around the world, that you would remind your people of the great hope we have because of your gospel. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. 
Amen. Well, if we're going to be involved in the church of God, we want God to occupy our hearts and reign in them. And our next song, O Great God, uh, speaks of that. Let's stand together as we sing. Well, if you would uh, turn with me uh, in your Bibles to uh, the book of Nehemiah. Uh, in the church Bibles, that's page uh, 484. Uh, and this evening we're going to look at Nehemiah uh, chapter 1 uh, and verses 1 to 4. Uh, but before we uh, get into Nehemiah, it's worth uh, just putting uh, the book of Nehemiah in its context uh, in the Bible, and just 
uh, perhaps uh, think about why it's worth uh, looking at this book. Of course, it's worth looking at any book of the Bible because it's all the Word of God. Uh, but at the moment, we uh, are hearing a lot of phrases um, such as uh, build back better and such things, uh, where there's a, a recognition uh, of the work of rebuilding that's needed after uh, the last couple of years. Of course, that's true of, uh, of nations, uh, but it's also uh, true, I believe, uh, for churches as well, to an extent. Uh, we've had a long period uh, where we've had to function differently, uh, and we're coming out of that period, uh, and we need to perhaps uh, think about how we start working uh, spiritual muscles that may well have atrophied a little bit uh, over the last couple of years. Uh, perhaps for some, uh, the Christian, our Christian lives uh, perhaps have become stale. Uh, perhaps that uh, fire is not burning quite so bright uh, any longer. Uh, perhaps the last couple of years has made that spiritual decline easier uh, to fall into. There's been a period of, of, of forced uh, stoppage in many ways, and we need to get moving, don't we? And so it's good that we can come to a book like Nehemiah, uh, a book that focuses on a rebuilding job for God's people, following a period of having to function differently in their worship of God than they would have liked. So to put Nehemiah in its uh, place in the Bible, uh, if we go uh, back a little bit, you, many of you have heard of King David. King David was Israel's uh, greatest king. Uh, he was promised that he would be a king on a throne that would last forever. Uh, and he was king of a united Israel. His son Solomon sinned greatly uh, and led to his son facing a rebellion. And the kingdom was divided into two. There was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the north had only evil kings. And the south in Judah, well, they had a mixed bag. And in 722 BC, Israel, the northern kingdom, was completely decimated by the Assyrian Empire, and the land was repopulated with pagans, and they were completely destroyed. Judah lasted a little longer, but they came also to face God's judgment in 586 BC through the Babylonians. And they came and they destroyed Jerusalem and they took people into captivity and Jerusalem was left a complete mess. If you imagine uh, those pictures of places like Coventry and London and uh, Dresden and Berlin after the Second World War, that's the kind of image you should have in your mind of what Jerusalem would have looked like when the Babylonians had finished with it. And this was a major problem for the people of God. Not just nationalistically, not just because 
their land had been destroyed and they had nowhere to live. But it was a problem theologically. Jerusalem was more than just their hometown. It was the center of the house of King David. It was the center of the place of worship for God's people. It seemed as if everything God had promised was over. But God's people survived as a remnant in exile through the witness of prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And they said that this exile would last for 70 years and then there would be a restoration. And their preaching sustained the faith of these exiles amongst other prophets throughout those years. They said God has not given up on his people. They said that the promises of God would be fulfilled. And years later, this is what happened. I'm going to read you some words from the end of Second Chronicles. So this is talking first of God. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword. And they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. So it's talking about the king of Babylon there. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests all the time of its desolation. It rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment by the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord their God be with them. This happened in 539 BC, and you can see part of uh, what was going on here. Um, a few years ago, we went to the British Museum and saw the Cyrus Cylinder, a little piece of history from this uh, very time. And in response to this decree by Cyrus, uh, a first group went back and they began to rebuild the temple. And we can read about this in the book of Ezra. Uh, another group came back later on with Ezra and they established the law of God, teaching it to the people so that they could worship God in Jerusalem properly. But Jerusalem itself, apart from the temple, was still in ruins. It looked a complete mess, and the walls were broken down. And so Jerusalem was poorly defended, they were vulnerable to attack, and they just looked really rubbish. And also, in addition to that, over the years, the people of God appeared to have just lost that passion for the Lord. They just were accepting things as they were. This is the state of things. It doesn't really matter. And they lost their zeal. And that's the context of the book of Nehemiah. The city of God needs rebuilding. 
and the people of God need revitalizing. And Nehemiah really splits into those two halves. The first half, chapters 1 to 7, speak of how the walls are rebuilt. And the second half, chapters 8 to 13, speak of how the people are revitalized. And the big theme of this book is strengthening God's people for the building work. And that's where we touch base with the 21st century. Because we also, as the people of God, are also in a building work, which Jesus Christ promises will be done. So Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, Jesus says, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overcome it, or the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, which we read earlier, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building, building project, is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And so we are involved in this great plan, in this great building project. And so the book of Nehemiah helps equip us to be part of that project, strengthening us for the task. And so I hope you see the relevance of this for where we are today. Because after the last couple of years, we need to have that strength put into us as we begin to exercise those spiritual muscles in service of God in this local church in Pelsall and beyond as we are involved in this building work of the kingdom of God. And so with that in mind, let's come to Nehemiah and let's read uh, verses 1 to 4. Uh, of this book. Each uh, message, at least for the first seven chapters, uh, gives us uh, a kind of um, uh, a major point on how we can be involved in the building of the church. And in the building of the church, the context for us is the local church here in Pelsall, but also we can be involved in God's kingdom further afield in different ways. Uh, And the first thing that we see that Nehemiah teaches us is that we need to see the need. We need to see the need. So let's read verses 1 to 4 of Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. And its gates have been burned with fire. 
When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. This is God's word. If we're going to be involved in God's work of building his church, we need to see the need that is around us. We need to see and be convicted, and if we're not, we won't be much use in his service. And in these verses, we see two truths regarding seeing the need. First of all, we see the plight of God's city, and then we see the pain of God's servant. So first of all, the plight of God's city. The book begins in verse 1, notice there, with the name Nehemiah. Uh, He is the author of this book. Uh, We we see there very much uh, him using the first person, I or we, so it's kind of uh, a memoir. But we don't know much about him. We don't know much about his family. We don't know much about his religious pedigree. He's not a king of Israel or uh, a priest or anything like that. Uh, He is there. Uh, He just appears in the scriptures, but he is available to serve the Lord. He seems to appear from nowhere. And that's the first point of encouragement for us. None of us need any kind of religious pedigree. We don't need to come from a long line of Christians. We don't need to be anybody in particular except someone who is available for the task of serving our Lord. And Nehemiah places Uh, his story in history at a specific time. Uh, Notice there the month of Kislev, which was uh, in our months, November, December time. And it's in the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes. So it doesn't mention Artaxerxes yet, but he is the king. And the 20th year refers to his particular reign. And he has a specific place where he places the beginning of this story, He is in the citadel of Susa. Now, Susa was one of the main uh, royal cities of the Persian Empire. And it was the place where the kings would go in the wintertime. And so if you clock that it's November, December, we can assume that at this point the king is nearby. And Susa is also 800 miles away from Jerusalem. In verse 2, a man comes to Susa called Hanani. He's described here as a brother. It's a very general term. He might be Nehemiah's relation. Uh, He could also just be uh, a brother in the faith, in the Jewish faith. But he's he's either family or a fellow Jew. It doesn't really matter. But he had come all the way from Jerusalem. We're not told why he came. It obviously doesn't matter why he came, but he traveled that 800 miles to go to Susa. And during the exile, uh, the Jews were all over the Persian Empire. And so there were all sorts of reasons why Hanani might have gone to Susa. He might have visited a relative. uh, We just don't know. But what we do know is Nehemiah is very interested in what is happening with the Jewish remnant in Jerusalem. It is important to notice his interest here. 
He is concerned about the work of God in Jerusalem. As a Jew, he would know of God's promises of the Israelites' return from exile. He would have supported those who returned with his prayers. He would have been keen on the temple being rebuilt. He probably would want to have gone there himself, especially at the feasts of the Jews. Just like we saw in Acts where people went to uh, Pentecost to worship. It was a little bit like uh, in our context where a missionary who we support might come and report on the work of God that we're supporting them doing and us asking them about their work. And we ought to, as God's people, have an interest in the work of God in the world, shouldn't we? We should be concerned about what God is doing in our own church and across the world. And Nehemiah asks two questions, or two, about two uh, particular things. First of all, he asks about the people of God. That's what the Jewish remnant uh, uh, means. They are those who went back to Jerusalem after Cyrus's decree, after the 70 years had passed. So he, ta- he asks about the people of God, and he asks about the place of God, Jerusalem, the city of God, the place of worship, the place where the temple was. In the Old Testament, that was where God's people went to worship God. And he's concerned about it. He wants to know. He's eager. He's not just paying lip service. There's a genuine concern about what is going on in God's kingdom. And in verse 3, the news is not good. Look at verse 3. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Notice there are two parts to the news in verse 3. There is trouble and there is disgrace. They're two different uh, problems. Both because of the walls in Jerusalem. The walls in Jerusalem would have been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. In the book of Ezra, the work of rebuilding them started, but they were stopped because of opposition. And ultimately, that opposition led to this king, Artaxerxes, stopping the work. And so the walls were not rebuilt. You can read about that uh, in Ezra chapter 4. And these walls being broken down and the, the gates which would have been in the walls, uh, burnt was a cause of trouble and disgrace. It was troubling because of the practical aspects of having a city without walls. Now, we perhaps don't think of it quite in the same way uh, today, but in those days, if your city had no walls, it was vulnerable to attack from the outside enemies. It was dangerous to be a city without walls. Uh, People could come in, take what they want, and run out with no uh, kind of block uh, from their way. But disgrace is slightly different to trouble. Disgrace speaks of the reputation. The reputation of having a city with broken walls and blackened gates. 
And here's why it's a disgrace. Think about this for a moment. The city of God, Jerusalem, the place of worship for the people of God, the place that was supposed to be a light to the nations, looked a complete mess. People would look at Jerusalem and think, what kind of God is that? What kind of God do you worship with walls that are broken down? You can't even rebuild them. God's name would have been seen as a joke when people looked at the walls of God's city. It was a disgrace. And Nehemiah saw, heard about that, 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 the, the walls being broken down and the gates being blackened and he would have understood what Hannah and I said. They are in trouble and they are in disgrace. Well, for us today, the church is the means of God sharing his glory. The church is the way that God shows his manifold wisdom. But I hope you can see, isn't there much trouble and disgrace in the church of God? In terms of trouble, think about the lack of influence, perhaps, we have in culture so that laws could easily and can easily be passed that hinder the work of God. That can cause us trouble, can't it? Think of those Christians that have been left behind in Afghanistan. Are they not in trouble? Think about many churches and mission organizations struggling with finances and all sorts of other things. They are in trouble. But then think of the disgrace. There are people claiming, churches claiming to be churches that represent the glory of God, that water down what God teaches as if it doesn't really matter. Just in the last couple of months, haven't we seen an example of the the Methodist church saying that we can have same-sex marriage in our churches? It's a disgrace. When we see church leaders convicted of sexual abuse or abuse of power, that's a a disgrace, isn't it? We were in, uh, on holiday, we were in two places where there were Christians struggling, in trouble, trying to share the gospel in really hard places. These were godly uh, evangelical Christians that go to very tiny churches and places in Yorkshire. And I remembered a couple of years ago when we were at the, the Bangor Worldwide Mission Convention in Bangor in Northern Ireland, where there are big churches in Bangor. This is not a criticism of Bangor. Big churches, good churches. They preached the gospel in those churches. And there was a Christian organization that wanted to plant a new church in Bangor. It's a disgrace when there's Christians in places in Yorkshire and uh, Martin Hilda were telling us about France yesterday. The struggles that Christians have there to, to, to have churches. And you want to send a team to a place where there's more churches than, than most places. That, that is a disgrace to the kingdom of God. 
But what about our own church? Recently, we've had to put members out of membership because of the disgrace that sin brings upon the name of God. And if people in our church hide sin or bury it or speak of godliness but don't live it, that is a disgrace upon the kingdom of God, isn't it? When we look out at the lost and have no burden, it's a disgrace. Now there is, there is much to be encouraged about in how God is working, both in our church and across the world. Of course there is. God is doing amazing things all over the place. But that's not what the focus is here, is it? There is trouble and disgrace also in the kingdom of God. And this passage asks us a question. Do you see the need? Are you aware of what's going on? Does it bother you at all? Are these the kind of things that you pray about? Because Nehemiah was very bothered. We see in verse 4 the pain of God's servant. Look at his reaction to the trouble and disgrace in the kingdom of God in his day. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He didn't leave Hanani and say, Oh, well, it was nice having a chat with you, Hanani. I hope you have a safe trip back to Jerusalem when you go. He didn't just move on to the next thing on his agenda. This news stopped him in his tracks. And notice the fourfold movement, really, of grief. He sat down, he wept, he fasted, and he prayed. So I want to look at those, those four actions that he does. First of all, he sits down. So in other words, he stops what he is doing, and he thinks about what he has heard. And I think we have two problems when it comes to thinking deeply about anything, but particularly about the things of God. We are either too busy or too distracted, aren't we? Either we move on to the next thing on our busy schedules, so we don't stop at all, or we do sit down, but we've always got some device in our hand that distracts us from thinking about anything. I mean, how many of us, when we sit down, immediately start scrolling? How many times do you sit down and just think? Just think about anything, but in this particular case, about the trouble and disgrace in the kingdom of God, so that we can effectively pray. Do you ever just sit and think? Let me encourage you this week to spend some time turning your phone off, put it on silent or whatever, put it in another room and sit and have time with God. Nehemiah sits down, he stops what he's doing and he thinks. And perhaps when you sit down, uh, go through the the church prayer diary, uh, look through some of the updates from the the mission organizations we support. I mean, just look at the news, go on a, 
uh, the Open Doors website, for example, or something like that, um, and then put the website away and then sit down without looking at the, the website. But, but pray. Sit down and, and think. So he thought. Secondly, he wept. Nehemiah's weeping shows his passion for the glory of God and the work of God. And doesn't our reaction to events correlate directly to our passion towards them? I mean, I mean just look at, 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 at your, your, your sports fans. It's not a criticism of sports. It's just a, a fact, isn't it, that when something goes really well, look at the reaction. And similarly, when something goes really bad. I remember when I first bought a house uh, years ago, uh, I don't know if um, others have the same experience, when you have to send your deposit to the bank. Uh, and that money disappears, doesn't it? And when, I remember when I, I did that, I first of all, to test uh, that, that it was the right account, I sent uh, one pound, made sure that they got it before I sent the thousands of pounds for the house deposit. Now, if I'd have lost a pound, I wouldn't have minded. I'm not going to be that passionate. But if I'd have lost that whole deposit, because it goes off into someone else's account because I put the wrong number in, well, I'm going to be very passionate indeed, right? But to Nehemiah, the state of Jerusalem was an issue of the display of the glory of God in the world. This was a deeply important matter. This wasn't like losing a pound. This wasn't even like losing your whole house deposit. This was the most important work in the whole world. And so he got that, and so his reaction, accordingly, was one of weeping. And isn't it tragic when we are more passionate, when we weep over our sports team, or our political party not winning, or any other number of the most trivial things in comparison that do not go our way, then we are about the display of the glory of God through the church. It's a tragedy, isn't it? When we are like that. Nehemiah sat down and he wept. When was the last time, apart from the natural reaction to, to pain in our lives, that you wept over the trouble and disgrace that comes upon the church of Jesus Christ? Myself, I find it far easier to adopt a posture of self-righteous navel-gazing and analyze the reasons for the disgrace than a posture of true brokenness over these things. Now, I'm not saying we're supposed to constantly be in grief. But we are sometimes. And what I'm not saying here is that we have to somehow manufacture tears. That's just acting. But I am saying that we should be asking God to give us a heart to see his glory displayed through the church. To give us a heart that would desire us to see the need around us. A heart like Jesus, who when he saw Jerusalem, 
was moved with compassion, and he wept tears himself, didn't he? So he sat down, he wept. Thirdly, he fasted. Uh, Fasting is an expression of this grief. Uh, So what the faster would do, and what fasting is, is uh, food was given up for a period of time. And usually what happens is instead of uh, eating, you would pray at the times you would normally eat. It's an appropriate reaction to grief. And it is part of the Christian experience. Jesus speaks in the Sermon of the Mount of when you fast. It shows a real uh, determination to really seek the Lord. And we need to have that kind of determination ourselves, to really seek his face. And then fourthly, he prayed. Uh, Next week, we're going to look in detail at his prayer. Uh, When we look at the second thing, after seeing the need, how we need to seek the Lord. We're going to learn how to pray through Nehemiah's prayer. But even aside from looking at his prayer, notice some things. He fasted and prayed in verse 4 for some days. Now in chapter 2, we see him take action. But we're going to see that that's four months later in the month of Nisan, which is March-April time. So he committed himself to long-term prayer. Not just a one-off session, but he prayed until God moved. And in the busyness of our world, we need to be people who, for the long term, are committed to praying for the cause of the kingdom of God. So he prayed for some days. But secondly, notice how he prayed before he acted. Now we're going to see as we look at the book of Nehemiah, he was a very gifted man of action. He had risen through the ranks of the king's household to be in the position we're going to see him in. He goes to Jerusalem and he's a very able administrator, a very great leader of the people of God. Nehemiah was a man of action, but before he does any action in this book, he prays. And how much easier is it for us to try and rush and fix the church and fix this person or that person, and think you can just deal with all of their problems, but don't seek God's guidance and seek God's help. And we depend on ourselves. We're going to see Nehemiah acting quickly and urgently throughout this book. But it's all built on a foundation of a prayerful dependence on God. Nehemiah prayed before he acted. And we need to do the same, don't we? Well, next week we are going to see how we can seek the Lord in prayer. But this week, I want to leave you with the encouragement to see the need. God's work of building his church is the greatest cause in the whole universe. It is the only cause that will last forever. And we have the privilege as God's people of being called to give our lives to it. And I pray 
I pray for each member of this church to want to be involved through the work of this church and through being involved in many other ways uh, as well. And I pray that as we go through this book of Nehemiah, he helps us to fan into flame a passion for the display of God's glory that will take over our lives. But if God is going to do that, we've got to see the need. And so spend some time this week praying that God would show you the need. And as we come next week, let's look at how we can seek the Lord. But before uh, our final song, let's just sit uh, where we are before we stand and sing. And let's just have a, uh, just a moment of quiet. And then I'll pray, and then we'll close with our final, final hymn. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have chosen to display your manifold wisdom through your people. We thank you that the church will be built. And we thank you for the awesome privilege of being able to be involved in it. But Father, we know that your church in many areas is in great trouble and disgrace. And we know that even within our own church, we have seen trouble and disgrace. And so help us, Lord, to see the needs of your kingdom. Help us to be moved deeply by them, more deeply than we are by anything else. And equip us as we read the book of Nehemiah to know how we can be involved in the great project of building your church. We ask these things in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Well, our final song is one I don't think we've sung for a long time, but it really fits so wonderfully with this passage because it's a prayer uh, that God would uh, honor his name. Uh, the song is Restore, O Lord, the honor of your name. And each of the three verses is a prayer that God would do just that. So let's sing this uh, as a prayer to God that his name uh, would be honored. Let's stand uh, as we sing this together. Oh, uh-huh.
Psalm 85, verses 6 and 7. Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. Amen.